went to MasterCard and told them about what I'm trying to do and the vision we have, I've been laughed out of the room. Literally. They said, have you opened the MasterCard rules? Like, yeah. I read them page to page, start to finish, all three books. So you probably have seen that it's not legal to what they call crotch fronting. Says, yeah, I've seen that. Why are you here? Says, because I think it's the right thing to do. And I think you should work with us to do that because you will benefit because of this, 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 and that. And I've been laughed out. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders, the podcast which helps entrepreneurs succeed wherever you are in your journey. Today, I'm talking to Shahar Bialik, the founder and CEO of Curve. Curve makes your different bank accounts usable from one card and app, so you can choose to use your Starling business card for this and your Revolut personal account for that without having to carry loads of cards around with you. I'm a bit of a fanboy. Shahar is a multi-exit entrepreneur and has grown Curve to an $800 million valuation. It's pretty amazing when you think that MasterCard laughed him out of the room when he first pitched his idea. But first, let's go back to the start. Born and bred in Israel. I actually grew up until the age of 16 in a small town in the green borders, they call it in Israel, uh, where the settlement are now there, called Ariel. We're not being any religious or anything, just... My parents chose to live there because it was a new and upcoming place with a lot of green around it. Living in a very small town gives a lot of confidence and, and security and, and everyone knows everyone. It was 20,000 people living there. At age of 16, however, I've been very noisy at school, so I've been offered to still be at school, but just not participating much, just come for the exams and instead go to university to study computer science. And so age of 16, moved to Tel Aviv. And started to study uh, computer science in Barana University uh, while studying at school. Uh, it's a special program that you study for three years and it equals to 1.5 years. Because I still have to attend school a bit. You go to the military because in Israel, military is still compulsory for three years. So I applied to uh, one of the special forces and eventually ended up in different special force team. It was a two and a half years of journey of training and eventually you get the and uh, unfortunately, after a few months in the unit, uh, more or less kind of the first uh, a few operations, uh, me and, and a few members of my team got injured and uh, was six months rehabilitating at home. And we left with the choice of coming back to the unit, completing uh, the five years because they have to sign two more years because the training is so long. But then as a back office uh, support or just leave. And we, of course, decided to leave because back at the time, and it was the right decision, but back at the time, I felt that coming back to the unit and seeing your friends that you grew up with in the unit, doing the stuff you've been trained to do and you cannot do them, you would feel very incompetent, very impotent. And it's not a good feeling. So we decided to move forward. But So that's kind of the, the beginning of my career. 21, left the military with a few of my friends that also got injured and uh, from here also starts kind of my, my entrepreneurship career. But back to the question of how was it to grow up in Israel and kind of the good stuff and the bad stuff. As an Israeli, as I think most Israelis have love-hate relationship with the country. Love because there's a lot to cherish about Israel. It's a country with a, not a lot of resources. Everything is constrained. So you have to be very creative and innovative. Uh, in Israel, everyone are Israeli slash Jewish. So everyone are kind of wolf to a wolf. So you really that grew up a thick skin and grit and perseverance and creativity because everything is constrained. And when you go to the military, which is like a melting pot, because anyone from whatever background you are, you're coming to the same place and you've been getting the same training of how to communicate, some training on leadership, some training on how to think, but it does melt you together and create 
a few things that makes us is very unique, and not just Israelis, but anyone else who's been to military, which is this mindset that everything is possible, which is this mindset that it's all in your head. It's this mindset of frugality, it's this mindset of innovation, how to communicate properly, directness in communication. Sometimes others would call it abrasiveness in communication. But I think that the culture in Israel, the situation in Israel of, of constraints and, and that you have to be innovative, together with the Israeli culture of chutzpah and the thick skin you have to grow, together with the military, creates a very unique breed of culture that allows you to then create a remarkable entrepreneurial backbone or breeding ground. And what about your parents and, you know, influence around you growing up? You know, are they entrepreneurs? Do they serve in the army? Did they encourage you to follow this path of independence? Is that very natural? So not quite. My father was kind of independent, uh, but he was a taxi driver. He had his own taxi company. Uh, my mom was a teacher in, in kindergarten and school. I came from a very humble family at some points in, in my childhood. We didn't have food on the table on a Friday evening. We had like cheese instead of like proper meat. I'm a family of six children, so I'm the eldest of, of, of six. I have five more siblings. And we came from a very humble background. I think coming from a very humble background, it's a bit challenging because you have no back. You know you're alone. It's either you're going to make it or you don't. So that gives you motivation to some people. To me, it gives motivation. And the second thing is that when you succeed, then the, I think the impact of the success on the family, there's nothing that can beat it because they could go buy, go back and buy my house, my mom's house mortgage and, and support my, my, my family and siblings with their studies or anything they need to do. But if I had to look back and understand what exactly happened that got me to where I am today, so I think the constraints that you had in life left you no other way than to innovate, in this case, to work hard. And I think work hard, this work ethic of you want to be an Olympics, you want to be an NBA player, you want to be Muhammad Ali, you have to train a lot. And in our markets, training a lot means working hard a lot, training your brain, learning a lot, looking at different aspects of, of reality and the markets and educating yourself. So I've invested in education. And I think my mom is a lot of thanks to that uh, because she... After I sold my first company, I, I was kind of 22 years old. I kind of took a break a bit, like a few few months, nothing more than that. More, I was like, "What are you doing with your life?" I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur. What do you mean? I've just sold a company. I have money. It's like, does it come with a certificate? It's like, no. So go study. And eventually, I found myself studying law and economics. But this view of education and investing in oneself was really an important part of who I am and ended up being because it helped me get different point of views on life, computer science, law and economics, and MBA in SIAD. And this different point of view came not just because of the material, the curriculum, and the professors, but also because of the people who I had the pleasure to study with, that in every point in life, they were better than me, smarter than me, faster than me, more successful than me, which gave me a nice bar to say, okay, that's what good looks like. Let's aim for that one. And every time you increase the bar, and there's a joke in Israel that, how Israeli thinks, but it's very correct to how we operate. How do you win a competition in racing? You start as fast as you can and you slowly increase the pace, which is kind of a funny joke, but it's true. We're starting as fast as we can and increase the pace. How? Not because you are you can run faster, because you run smarter, you educate yourself. And my uncle and my, my brother family, they were more entrepreneurial, so I could sit with them and work with them when I was younger and see how they uh, negotiate, how they Think about the business. 
how to build organizations and give inspiration into, wow, actually, if you really want to be wealthy, if you really want to evolve your financial career, the way to do it is not by being employees, actually by creating something from nothing and bringing people together. And that was something that excited me a lot. And that was kind of the, I think, where I first got the bug, not for my close family, but my more of my extended family, that I was very close to them. Let's talk a little bit then about um, about your entrepreneurship journey. So you're building Curve at the moment, but actually, you know, you've had quite a decent career already pre-Curve. And you already mentioned, you know, you had your first exit at 22, was it? You know, that sounds super impressive, obviously, to everyone except for a Jewish mother who just expected you to go and educate yourself effectively. But... Um, Let's talk a little bit about your your career up till Curve. Then, what were you doing with your time, and why did you pursue what you pursued? So the the first one was really kind of a mistake. You know, we kind of sat down the, me and, and and the guys from the unit who got injured. And what are we gonna do next? It's like I, I want to sell my car, and the only way I could sell my car was to put an ad on a newspaper that would cost me like a hundred euro. And it will, it will only get published next week. And I will only start getting phone calls the week, next week and the week after, only on a Friday because that's when it's published. So I have to sit all Friday next to my phone on my mobile and expect phone calls. And didn't feel to me, it was like 2002, 2001. Didn't feel to me very kind of, um, you know, we're in internet bubble and it's very much technologically advanced. So in, in the military, we had um, something that allowed us to communicate between the internet and mobile phones, generic phones, stupid phones, cell, cell towers. So we commercialized this technology. It's, it's called in, in the commercial, in the civil life, WAP protocol. I don't know if you're old enough to remember those old Nokia phones. Yeah, I'm just about old enough to remember WAP. There you go, WAP. So WAP protocol. So we commercialized the WAP protocol. It basically allowed us to communicate between the internet and the mobile phone. And the reason we've done it is because they wanted to build a website like a classified ad website that people can go up, put an ad on for like 10 euro, 10 euro, not 100 euro. And if someone is looking for a similar content, so someone looking for a car with a similar price, they will get a text message immediately. So the server will push a text message to the web protocol to the customer. And the customer then calls you immediately asking for the car. So the experience moved from putting an ad 100 euro now, next week, maybe someone will call me, to putting 10 euro in ad now, and we immediately get a phone call if it's relevant, and it will keep trickling down. Eventually, what transpired is that the WAP protocol was really actually a powerful technology that others want to use for MMS, kind of SMS uh, pictures and SMS and other activities. So we sold it after six months to back then a small company called Unitel for about a million dollars. Not much, 250 each kind of got in six months. And it's pretty rich. Especially coming from my background, it's a lot of money, especially back then in time in Israel. What transpired is that a year later, they sold it to Orange for $10 million. But the point is that that started our kind of bug, which is you can really develop value from nothing with good teamwork and people you trust. And that kind of started my, my career in, in entrepreneurship. And once you have this bug, it's really hard to go back. The second one was Door Center, where we I actually found that there was a monopoly between two companies, uh, Multilock and another company that's known in Israel that's selling you security products. And the way they would work is that for the majority of the products, they have to come take uh, measurements. By doing so, they come into your house, they see where you live, and, and they have no price catalog. So based on where you live and how they look at you, they give you a different price. And sometimes the prices are very expensive. So I used the same technology. We had a protocol to use the camera of the person, take 
a picture and the algorithm would measure the, the measurements automatically. And then those measurements and needs would, of the product as the customer selected would go to multiple service providers in Israel that will then bid on the customer. The customer will then choose and they come in and provide him at, at almost half the price for what's available in the market across all of Israel. That was really successful. It went on for a couple of years into my first year of law and economics. And eventually I sold it to a company that was owned by, by Multilog, Rav Bariach. So Israeli Multilog called Rav Bariach. Multilog eventually bought Rav Bariach, who bought that company. Eventually Multilog was bought by Yale, a British company. The third one was actually uh, started as an NGO. It actually wasn't um, for money purposes. When I was uh, 20, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer, unfortunately. And he passed away when I was 21. But while I was still alive and doing the chemotherapy and all the treatments, there's a lot of, I don't know, if, I hope you would never experience that in your family or your friends, but when you have cancer treatments, there's a lot of side effects to medicine. And they give you medicine for the side effect. And you're very depressed. You don't have appetite. You vomit a lot. It's not a good place to be. And I figured out that actually medical cannabis can really at least make my father's end of life better. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I've been through this exact same experience, by the way. My father did pass away, wasn't from cancer, and separate story. But my mum, who's still with us, um, you know, had a very extreme, she had stage four ovarian cancer. And actually, yeah, like you're saying with the pain, um, I was determined to, and she's very anti any kind of drug whatsoever, especially and including weed because of that generation, but was willing to do anything. And it really helped her. Yeah, so I read a lot back then. It was not a lot to read online, but I read a bit about it. 
and it wasn't legal in Israel. There was nowhere to get it. So I got the license, the permission to import seeds to my father. But nothing really happened with that because what I didn't know is that you don't just put the seeds in the ground and water them. You have to have a whole kind of uh, operation around it with lighting and hydration. And uh, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, so you're not you're not you're not a natural in the garden. It doesn't sound like no, not not natural. No, <laughs> but what did happen is that this idea is incepted in my mind, never left me. So now after the second startup, I have more money, and I'm talking to my uh, friend Perry from the military, from the unit, from the first startup, and then I'm hey, there's this issue where just terminal patients, ALS patients, cancer patients, Parkinson patients, where we can really help them uh, do something good. So let's do this project and do what I couldn't do for my father for everyone we could help in Israel. And we both kind of managed to bring him on board and, and bought into that. And we went again to the same person that I went a few years ago, a few years back to get the license and got permission to dispense, to grow and dispense to 50 patients. Perry found a friend of his or a friend of a friend of his up north in Zafed. They could grow the cannabis. Eventually, three and a half, four years later, we're now in 2009, uh, mid-2009, it became quite an operation dispensary in Zafed, dispensary in Tel Aviv, soon dispensary in uh, Jerusalem, two and a half medical cannabis a year, and dispensed to about 4,000 patients a month. Some patients are very known figures in Israel that no one knows they're either terminally ill or doing, doing chemotherapy or have some issues with their health. But it got to a point that we couldn't handle that anymore with volunteers and donation work. All the money we've made really just went back to this business and there was no expectation of get, getting it back. It was really a do-good. It was the most fulfilling project I've ever had and made in my life. By that point of time, we had to find a way forward and that's where Perry really led the way and said, we're going to regulate the market and we really wrote the regulation in the market that exists in Israel today in, in Perry's bedroom. We went to the parliament with, with, a, with a cannabis pot and told them that's what you're afraid of. But eventually we managed to regulate cannabis in Israel and the production started to be opened up to multiple companies, of which one of them is Tikkun Olam. And the dispensary was happening by the government uh, as part of the medical basket to those who are terminally patients, Parkinson, ALS, and a few other diseases issues. At that point of time, we also uh, sold our part of the company and made, made a buck. We spin it around for, to an NGO to incorporate and, and, and made a buck there, which was a huge success, both personally and financially. And the last one is what I mentioned. Uh, it's kind of it's funny. It's like telecommunication, e-commerce, medical cannabis. It's funny. When my wife, when I, she first presented me to her parents, it's like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, don't worry. It's a drug dealer. And it was a funny one. But the fourth one was actually a HR, applicant tracking system, uh, we found there's a huge opportunity to provide to employers a better way to identify, target, acquire, and manage the entire process of employees, of, of candidates. Also, at the same time, universities had to distinguish themselves from others and providing career services to those who go to study there. So we built a system that basically gives all the universities in Israel or all those who sign up with us, which is the majority of them, a career center a system that allows their graduates to look for jobs and apply for jobs and upload their CVs and so forth. But in exchange, we give it for free, but in exchange, we got all the data database of all the graduates in Israel. And then we took this database together with the system, the applicant token system, and sold it to all the employers, all the big employers in Israel, from accounting firms to law firms, economy firms, and so forth. It was pretty successful pretty fast, but not successful enough to buy us for the price they bought us. 
But the company Mukhshabat bought us, but they bought us really because the company was owned by family and they were pretty old and the children now want to take control of that company. So the owners of the, of the company Mukhshabat want to basically spin off the company and, and set it off. And we were a pretty good team with kind of three exits to date under our hood. And they basically acquired us. There was a good business to acquire. It was very matching their business, but the price didn't match. It really was their team they acquired. And my job was really to rebuild the company, make it to a good position, and start it off. Uh, so me and Ehud at this time, uh, was the co-founder of Smarty Q, uh, joined the company. I'm its CEO. Basically, in a year, 18 months, I uh, spin off the company, got to EBITDA positive, found the target, signed a term sheet to buy 50% of the company. And at this point of time, was around August 2012, left the company to INSEAD, and I, with my co-founder, continued uh, the journey as CEO, eventually selling off the company to a very large traded group in Israel called Kavmache. So, nice and not nice success story. And that's kind of the, brings me to INSEAD, studying uh, my MBA in Singapore, September 2012, and I'll stop here for a second to breathe. You don't sound like you need to breathe. You're just in, in a free flow. Okay, so... We've got you um, building multiple companies until you go to INSEAD, which is ironic because ultimately by this point, you've already done three MBAs. Yes, but, but again, it's kind of, I want to take here, it was, if you think about 12 years of very hard work from the military all the way to the last company, Smarty Q. I want to take a year off. I just want to take a year off and go travel. I had money. I'm young. I'm 30. Just take time off. And again, my mom is like, what do you mean time off? Go study. And I basically found, it was kind of early 2012, I already kind of planned kind of my pension if you'd like and my mom is like go study so I found the best school I could apply to to find the most amazing people because I already realized that when you go study really what you what you're earning is not the curriculum and life is better curriculum than actually a professor in a in the room and you, you never can underestimate how much you can learn from people because when I got to INSEAD I was you know Israelis we're arrogant I'm as arrogant as it gets, kind of when I was 30 years old going to Inseado. I've been there, done that, three companies under my hood. I'm fine with money. It's, it's like all good, right? So the point is that when I got there, you start to see people who are smarter than you, richer than you, visited more countries than you, just better than you in every aspect of, different aspects, but every aspect of that. And you then say, okay, now I get it. Now I get what great looks like. And it, again, increases the bar and gives you a more ambitious way of critical thinking and how to communicate and culture, understanding cultures, how to work with different cultures. This is remarkable education. So we've got it done. Give us like the snapshot for Curve. So why did you start, most importantly? What was the need in the market? Obviously, you're in London, you're in fintech center. There's a bit of a boom going on with fintech. Like, what were the outside motivating forces that made you want to start Curve? Like, did your purpose and your like your raison d'etre, did that change from them to now? And yeah, like, take us through the sort of the PR journey. Like, how much have you raised, like, so far? What are your, like, key metrics that you're open to sharing with an audience just to give us a sense of what you do, how you exist, and how it's going? All right. So we started Curve when fintech didn't exist. It was called payments. In fact, one of the first times you will find in, ever in the history of the internet, the word rebundling, uh, rebundling money, rebundling the bank, was Curve. I remember my, back then, the lead marketing, Anna, it was British. I told her, put in the PR rebundling. It says, but there is no such word. It says, there isn't bundling, no? It says, yes. So 
towards rebundling. Says, there is no such word. Like now there is. Put it in. And now everyone uses towards rebundling. It was really the beginning of what you call today fintech. But my wife reminded me, we had a conversation with some friends two weeks ago, that on our first date, I've uh, pitched Curve to her. <laughs> it wasn't called Curve, but I pitched Curve to her. I was surprised. I didn't remember that. But indeed, in 2006, I had this idea before I started Tikkun Olam that we can help people celebrate life more. I can't change the scarcity of money, but I can help them understand money better, make better money decisions that allows them to manage cash flow better and therefore get more value for their money. That's kind of the, the reason the track of that. But back then in 2006, I did an executive summary as I always do before starting an initiative. And then I went with no go. And the reason I went with no go is because I thought that either Facebook would do that. Back then they had a billion people and they had a virtual currency. I thought they could use the micropayments online in the internet as a wedge and grow from there to one of the biggest economies. Eventually, of course, they didn't do that. Uh, I think after Mark met with Obama back in 2008, they dropped the virtual currency and dropped that potential. And the second one I thought no-go is because PayPal, because PayPal had the right infrastructure, structure, what we call internally over-the-top banking platform, to deliver that vision that separates the form factor, the way you pay, and the way that you pay is the wedge to all your finances. And it was, of course, before even the Steve Jobs came with the iPhone, so you didn't have the mobile in, in your hands. It was only online. So dropped it, not the right time. And remember, timing is the biggest reason why businesses fail. There's a nice TED Talk by Bill Gross that shows some data about it, about 70% of businesses fail because of timing, not because of anything else. So after Enciada, I, I want to know, one of the things I learned in Enciada is that I've never been on the other side of the employment. I've never been an employee in my life. I've been an intern, I've been in the military, but never been an employee. An actual employee. So I knew I wanted to move to London, which was the only English-speaking kind of country in Europe, which is really kind of about finance and capital and payments. So what's the right place? I knew I wanted to do payments, and I knew I wanted to be in a small company. So I joined as the head of product to back then a very small company called Checkout.com, uh, led by the founder Guillaume Poussa. And I joined there as the first head of product, building the entire uh, product stack that until today we're, we're using it. Uh, so it's remarkable activity. But after a year, delivered the alpha for him, as I promised. Uh, I'm the worst employee ever. He probably will tell you that as well. Although we did work well together. I told Guillaume, I'm, I'm out and left to start my next chapter in my journey. And along the lines of October 2014, started to bring up the idea of Curve again. And the reason was that the European Commission introduced PSD1 in 2009, started to talk about PSD2 and open banking, and start to create a lot of innovation in regulation that gives a very good protective layer to startups. It creates a great breeding ground for fintech. That's why fintech in Europe is the biggest in the world. The world's catching up now, Israel, US, Latin America, Asia, Pacific as well, but still Europe is the biggest fintech uh, capital of the world right now. And that's very a lot of thanks to the regulators in uh, UK and Europe who worked very closely together. So start working on Curve, kind of October 2014, and April 2015, after creating a proof of concept, raised the first series seed, uh, 1.3 million pounds from the likes of uh, Spininvest led around, uh, Seedcamp, which back then was uh, Index Seed VC, uh, also invested. And really kind of the who and who in fintech. Uh, Tavat Hinvikus from TransferWise, Vicky Knox uh, from Tandem, rest in peace. Uh, Michael Kent from Azimo, Ed Ray from Betzer. Then the, when we started Curve, it was very challenging because what Curve's trying to do is we're trying to 
when I looked at the market, I saw the unbundling happening all around us. We saw TransferWise taking a business model that was owned by the bank, FX, unbundling that and creating a better, faster, cheaper solution. Azimo doing the same. And start hearing about number 26 and Monzo and World Remit. And all those companies around you start to pop out. And as someone who's been founding multiple companies for the past 15 years, you know what happens in markets that begins to unbundle. You know it is inefficient market and therefore it must move to efficiency and it will have to rebundle back together. It will have to converge back together across the value chain. So you knew rebundling will, is inevitable in this market. And the only question I had is when that unbundling, rebundling will happen and what type of race car I need to build to win that race to rebundling. And I looked at different models that existed in the market, and the only paradigm that existed back then that we could rely on to build rebundling was the neobank model. Give me your checking account, don't use Barclays, use Monzo, use Revolut, and I will cross an upside to you products and services, eventually making money and scale. But that model didn't make sense because the servicing cost of this model is around 40 euros per year per customer. It's something their scale, not even Monzo scale. So it's a loss leading pretty hefty loss-leading wedge. The second one is that your bank is actually doing a great job. I know you, you think I'm a fintech founder, you're joking to me, my bank is not doing a great job, but it's just because you, your definition of the job of the bank, your expectation of the job of the bank is a myth. The job of your bank is only one, keep your money safe. And I can assure you, your bank is doing a great job keeping your money safe. All the other things that you think your bank should provide you are a myth. I can do them without being a bank. I can provide you lending and credit and advisory and everything else without being a bank. The only thing I need to be a bank license for is to take deposits. And deposits are only reducing your cost of funding. So that's the only reason to become a bank. So being a bank doesn't make sense for that reasons. And also other reasons like scaling up the company across borders, you have to get a license, it takes a long time. It's very costly. And the type of people you need to have in a bank kind of slow you down, compliance people, bankers. And the return on equity for your uh, shareholders is much lower because you have to use the equity for the capital requirements. So being a bank was not the right approach. So you have to find a different approach that basically does the following. It doesn't change your behavior. Keep using the products you love and trust because they're doing a great job. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. Secondly, don't change the infrastructure. Apple Pay just emerged back then, but the infrastructure had to change and the behavior had to change. So we have to find a way to bridge the old to the new. Something has to work with a card. And really to be able to succeed in demystifying finance and allowing you to celebrate life, I have to get access to your data and provide you actionable insights. That means that whatever we do, the solution is to provide us both to read access and write access at the same time to each one of your accounts. And that's what we came up with, all your money in one place, all your cards in one card. The problem with that idea was three. Number one, apparently, the market thought. It is impossible to do that. It's impossible to do it technically because the transaction has to move across two transactions globally at the same time. Just the network latency will be over six, seven seconds. You will be after the cut of time. The transaction will always be declined. So technically, you can't move faster than the speed of light. We prove them wrong, we can. Commercially, it's not viable because of the way interchange works. We prove them wrong. And the networks, that was the biggest hurdle, will never let you do that. And they were right. If you look to Google Wallet, who emerged in two years earlier, in 2012, they built a similar product with a similar vision, with a similar construct, creating all your cards in one card, the Google Wallet card. And a day before lunch, they've been blocked by one of the networks and completely shut down the business and all the investment they've made 
And we know that because one of the biggest leaders in the Google Wallet team has invested in Curve in the seed stage, John Weiner, one of the fintech OG in the US. When we went to MasterCard and told them, back then Visa was kind of in turmoil of Visa Europe, Visa US, there was no one to speak with really there. Uh, but we went to MasterCard and told them about what I'm trying to do and the vision we have. I've been laughed out of the room, literally. They said, have you opened the MasterCard rules? Like, yeah, I read them page to page, start to finish, all three books. So you probably have seen that it's not legal to what they call crotch fronting. Says, yeah, I've seen that. Says, why, why are you here? Says, because I think it's the right thing to do. And I think you should work with us to do that because you will benefit because of this, 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 and that. And I've been laughed out. But one brave soul walked after me and told me, his name was Darren Deal, and told me, you are asking a lot. And there's a lot of myth around the organization. And there's nothing we in Europe can change without support from the leadership team in the US. But I can try and give you a waiver to go outside to the market for a small population, get some data, and come back to me. And indeed, we've got a waiver to launch Curve, but only for small businesses, sole traders, freelancers in the UK market. So we couldn't serve, it's a retail product, it's a consumer proposition, and we couldn't serve almost anyone. But it was good enough for me. I raised money based on this promise around A, launched in February 2016, our uh, beta. And it was a pretty successful launch. A lot of noise in the market, a lot of signups. And predominantly is because one of the reasons we could do that is because we supported Amex. And one of the things people really want is all the cards they want to also have Amex. But unfortunately, three months later, Amex didn't quite like what the offering is. We didn't build a proper relationship with them and they shut us down. So Amex was off all the way until 2018. We continued to grow, but in 2017, Mastercard, the guy from Mastercard calls me and tells us, listen, the leadership team in the U.S. wants to meet with you to discuss the continuation of your program. Of course, I'm very scared what will happen. They're going to shut us down. But I met with the team there. Ajay, the CEO, was there also in the meeting, and Sherry Hamond, uh, who's EVP Digital Products uh, Globally. And I explained to them the, our vision and the end game, which in our view was inevitable, the super app, and PSD1, PSD2, and how the market goes and our data that proves the model works. And eventually, after leaving the meeting, I'm getting a call a few days later, and with the best news I could hear, MasterCard approved rule change for you in Ukraine, Europe. You can go blast the market. Good luck. We're behind you. And that was really the beginning of Curve. January 2018, launching out to the consumer market, and really the rest is history. So we've got to um, MasterCard saying yes. Like, where where does Visa sit on this? Like, is it really, is it a product without that? So we, of course, operate on Visa, and, and and we had four and a half years of discussion with Visa, and that's where timing come into play. I, I think strategically, Curve found a clever way to operate with Visa and continued discussion over a long period of time. We also had great people at Visa who supported that and, and, and open, kept the discussion open. But eventually, the market continued to evolve. And in today's market, uh, we're in a position where Visa actually have agreed to change the rules and supporting the product, and not only with Curve, with other companies as well in the near future, I'm sure. And we eventually got that risk out as well. Also with Dynas and Discover, and I'm sure soon also with other networks. But the point is that that's the power of belief which is the moment you understand the market properly, the moment you read the market properly, and uh, that's number point number one, it has to be layered upon reality. And we got the market correctly. We knew that it's inevitable to get to the super app. We knew also because 
in China, it worked. We just can't leapfrog the technology. We have to use card networks to get there. And uh, because you believe, then you persist and you operate in a different way than others that might fall back in, in the first prequel they encounter. And with very smart advice from our shareholders and board members and very good people on the other side, people who want to believe, people who want to change, they're just constrained with some rules or policies or politics. And eventually through that activity, we've managed to get to this result. I think a good book to read to understand what we, can, what we went through is PayPal Wars. Very similar experience uh, PayPal had to curve. But again, we got to a point where we're now in 2021, after five years the business exists, after three years, three and a half years when we launched the product, three plus million customers, global company of almost 500 people with offices in Bristol, in London, in Lithuania, Vilnius, and Brooklyn, New York, about to launch in the New York market. We got the majority of the networks already onboarded and soon others will come as well. With very little money, we've raised $170 million to date. We still have about 50 in the, in, in the box, or a bit more even. And you see companies around us did much less with a lot more money. And I think it also tells you much about the culture, the frugality culture, frugal culture that we as Israelis or I as Israelis has and how you manage companies and, and move forward. So you said that um, you raised $170 million, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because obviously to you, you're like, that's very, very little money. Um, to other people listening, that's you know, it's a reasonable amount of money. I guess what are your what are your plans like moving forward? What are you looking to raise? Where do you think that's going to take you? You alluded to you know Endgame, right? So you're sitting in a Mastercard meeting, you're talking to the team about Endgame. What does Endgame look like to you? What is this like customer experience that seems so inevitable you for you from the start and remains that way today? Yeah. $170 million is a lot of money. You could buy a neighborhood here in London for that. Uh, but it's always the question of, in, in the context of what, and the context of the opportunity that we're after. And we're not the only one after this opportunity. You have Square, you have PayPal, you have Revolut, you have Robinhood, you have Chime, many different type of companies over for the, towards the same opportunity. And the opportunity is over a trillion dollar market cap right, within the next 10 years. It's a huge opportunity. That's why you see those numbers coming to the likes of Revolut, 30 billion valuation, we ask ourselves, like, how much returns they would get? One trillion, if they're right, on the bet. It's a lot of money. And there won't be one winner, they're going to be multiple winners. So what is this vision that we have that we think is inevitable? And that vision we have is exactly the same experience you have today with your Amazon, Netflix, and Spotify account. We have grown to expect this convenience and personalization and clarity uh, when we operate with those products. And we have not yet got that with money. If we are successful in our mission with Curve, you will still have Revolut, Amex, Monzo, and all those great fintech and financial institutions out there. It's just that with Curve, we're going to be this access point to your gateway to everything money. It's going to be one place from which you access everything. Exactly with Spotify, you have multiple companies produce different content for you, but you will use and access and consume everything to Spotify. Because why? Because the customer, I want a budgeting tool. I'll go to the Curve App Store for money, look for a budgeting tool. I see you wine app in the budget pops up. I'll install that. It pops up in my operating system, my dashboard, and I can now access this app directly from the Curve app. And all my data that Curve already has with my permission being transposed to this app. And now I get the view of my finances, a much better accurate view than what even Curve can provide because YNAB is professional company, singular market, singular focus 
on type of customer profiles for budgeting, but they're missing the data. What type of card should I use? When should I use it? What type of loan should I get? Can I get a better loan? How should I manage my money? Actionable insights. For example, we're building a product right now. We hope to finish launching that by end of Q1. So you probably heard of CurveFlex. I can go back in time to past payments up to a year ago and split into installments. So any account of Connected Curve, I made a, a, the wrong, I bought something for a thousand pounds, a nice pair of shoes a year ago. I now in need of a thousand pounds of cash in my account. I can go back to this transaction, swipe, split later. I get thousand pounds in my account. I'm going to pay hundred pounds every month for the next 10 months. So that's, we've launched this uh, last month, a month and a half ago. What we're about to launch in Q1 is now that you connected all your cards to Curve, we'll tell you how much you need to pay to your credit card company and when you need to pay that, so you never forget to pay. It doesn't impact your credit score, and it maximizes your cash flow across all your different credit cards and the APRs you're paying. But more importantly, if we think we can refinance this credit card debt you have with a lower cost loan, we will tell you, done. You're paying today 300 pounds a month, and if you continue to pay 300 pounds a month uh, with the current spend volumes you have into the card, we'll only finish the loan in 18 months. I can sell you 50 pounds a month, so you pay only 250 pounds a month today, and you finish it in 12 months instead of 18 months. Would you like to continue? It's a no-brainer. Of course I do. Click yes. Done. We action that insight for you. That's that vision we're building towards. Still a long time to get there. Still a lot of uh, bibs and bobs to connect, but this is the journey we're after. Okay. Biggest challenge ahead. What is the one reason why Curve might not succeed? Execution risk. I'm telling you, execution risk. We now just understand what does it mean execution risk. We're now operating in four different offices, three different countries, three different continents, if you consider the UK as an island. We're about to launch in the US. We're about to enter a new business line. We've entered a new business line lending. I always tell my team, we're one talent away from greatness. And then I'm hiring the next talent who's great. And then I'm saying, we're still one talent away from greatness because at the end it's just talents, always having the right talents in the company, investing in them. So there is a lot, a lot, a lot of execution risk still. And it always will exist, even if you're becoming an Apple company, still execution risk because someone else can come over and take your market little, exactly like happened with Nokia. So execution risk will never go, probably. And it's the biggest risk we have today. I would say every company doesn't realize they have execution risk. They just don't understand the risk in the company. Sometimes they have bigger risk than that. Uh, but for us, it's just execution risk. We just have to be super focused on what we must do, do it properly as intended, if measure what we're doing, if learning if it's failing and building from that. Therefore, make sure we are following our standards very diligently. And that is, sounds easy to do, it is not. Yep, in, in the word of a former guest, and I'm sure you've read his work, Jim Collins, you know, people think that following their principles is and their values is the easiest thing in the world, but if you do it right, it's the hardest things you ever do. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard, really hard because it, you always have to recognize them and call them out and embed them and bed them again until it becomes second nature. And even then, you can evolve and evolve. So it's hard. Jim Collins is right. Thanks, dude. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. 
who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. My first kind of creative expression ever, and it's just kind of being rejected because people looked at what we were doing and they were like, this doesn't look like activewear. And so it was hard. And in those early days, like we were, we launched in the spring of 2015, we shipped the product to some different boutiques and some studios. And by the end of 2015, we were just about out of money. That was Joe Kudler, the founder and CEO of Viori, an activewear brand that's coming to the UK in the spring and was just valued at $4 billion. He started off with funding of $2.5 million, which is a tiny amount in that world. And that lasted all the way up until this new valuation. It's quite the ride. Find out how he's done it. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan murray Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stollerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.